Any relationship that goes beyond a superficial level will experience some kind of tension or conflict. In fact, I almost want to say it should experience some kind of tension or conflict, because as we grow as a church in breadth, but certainly in depth of relationship, if you never experience tension or conflict in relationships, you've got to start asking yourself the question, how deep is this friendship? How deep is this relationship? If we never challenge each other, if we never maybe just ask a question, or hey, how, how are you doing with this kind of thing, then what are we doing, right? And so for some of us, it just starts on a very basic level of we got to change the way we think about relationships. Being a Christian is not just about everything being joyful all the time and, hi, how are you? And being a Stepford church where we all shake each other's hands and smile with toothy grins. But it's also about loving our neighbor, loving our brother, loving our sister enough to say, hey, I messed up. Or to say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And that's how, we're, if we're going to grow as a church, we've we got to have those kinds of conversations. And we have to have a kind of mindset that Conflict or tension isn't just an occasion for avoiding or an occasion for absence, but it's an occasion of an appointment, a divine appointment that God often uses to actually bond relationships even closer than they were before without addressing conflict or tension. We've got to have that mindset, I think, friends. And so God has given us, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, very clear steps for how to address and mend such conflict so that relationships are even tighter, even stronger than they were previous. So we're talking about steps to peace between you and me. And the first step we looked at a couple weeks ago was uh, our first G, glorify God. And then last week's step two was get the log out of my own eye. And we talked about how even if you have a conflict and you're responsible for only maybe 5% or less of that conflict, It is still your responsibility as a Christian, as someone who loves Jesus, to step up to the plate first and take responsibility for that 5%. Say, I'm sorry, apologize for that 5%. Get the log out. That's got to happen before we get to step three, which is this morning. The third of fourth four steps is gently restore. So That's what we're going to go over this morning. And I encourage you, if you have the bulletin to take some notes, there'll be a number of just practical tips this morning as we talk about how to have that conversation when someone has wronged you or wronged somebody uh, you know. Uh, I want to start you off, though, with two quick stories. Jesse Jacobs has made it possible to apologize without talking to the person you've actually wronged. Jacobs created an apology hotline. People unwilling to unburden their conscience in person can call this hotline and leave a message of apology on an answering machine. And each week, he gets about 30 to 50 calls logged as people apologize from everything from adultery to embezzlement. Says Jacobs, the hotline offers participants a chance to alleviate their guilt and to some degree to own up to their misdeeds. I'm just hoping that these people will feel better about themselves just by getting whatever's been bothering them off their chest. One caller to the hotline remarked, I hope this apology will cleanse me and basically purify my soul. (laughs) God knows I need it. That's one perspective. It's much easier for a Westerner to say sorry than compared with a Chinese person, claims Zhao Zhao Zing, 
a sociology professor at the People's University of China. As a society, he says, China lacks the spirit of apologizing. So this difficulty in this culture with apologies has given rise to the Tianjin Apology and Gift Center. It is a company whose task is to deliver apologies and attempt to facilitate reconciliation. (laughs) This is great. The company's motto is, we say sorry for you. So we have here like two extremes, right, of canceling out confrontation. For some cultures like China, maybe in the East in general, to try to eliminate pain and humiliation for the offender while still hopefully addressing the offended. Right? Still hopefully appeasing the offended and at least addressing their hurt and concern, but from afar. While most of us from the West seek to avoid confrontation altogether by finding some way to deal with our guilt, with our little bit of shame, other than risking conversation with anyone who has the right to forgive us. In both cases, the persons in conflict miss the mark. In the first case, the potential for reconciliation gets stored away in a little chip, a little SD chip like this one here. In the second, partial satisfaction through gifts that smell or taste nice, but probably don't achieve genuine reconciliation. And it reminded me, you know, friends, that without Jesus... Every motivation for genuine reconciliation is lost. I mean, why do it otherwise? The strength, the determination, the resolve to glorify God where it's least expected, where it's most uncomfortable. The humiliation and pain associated with removing a log from your eye and in the presence of your neighbor. And now having to confront someone else in their sin and in the hurt They've caused you and maybe others. Why put yourself through it? Because Jesus put himself through it for you. That's the only answer. Jesus glorified his Father down here on earth where no one expected God to dwell. No one expected glory to be down here. Yet God was here. He humbled himself, putting aside the best of his divine rights humbling himself to the point of even death on a cross. And now he sends his Holy Spirit to confront us with rebellion and restore us to himself. He does these things, friends. And so that gives us the encouragement and the real power to engage in these things with friends, with coworkers, with neighbors, and especially with the family of God. And so we can ask this key question in a nutshell this morning. How can I serve others by helping them take their share of responsibility in this conflict? Last week, we talked about how we could take our share of responsibility in the conflict. This week, how can I serve my brother and my sister by helping them take their share of responsibility in this conflict? So let's pray that God helps us with this this morning. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to grow this morning, to be challenged through your word. Jesus, you reconciled us to yourself through the cross and gave us the ministry then of reconciliation, your word says. And while that might be the hardest thing for some of us here to do, 
Keep reminding us, Jesus. Keep reminding us. Put it in our face. Keep reminding us that you did something harder to empower us to respond likewise, to be reconciled genuinely. Help us with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we're going to go through this morning are three degrees of gentle confrontation. <laughs> Two words that often don't go together, gentle and confrontation. First of all, remember, you've got to get the log out first. If you haven't listened to last week's sermon, do listen to that, because that is pretty crucial before getting to the third step. Get the log out, and then follow these steps, I would suggest, in order. So the first degree of gentle confrontation, I call it 1A, because, you know, like any pastor, I have multiple points with points. Uh, 1A is to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says this, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. That's where we got to start. And I know some of you might be thinking that's kind of cheating. This degree is cheating, especially you uh, semantic and lawyer types who uh, examine words. You know, is this really confrontation? Now, no person's being confronted if I overlook someone's offense against me. I agree. But the problem is being confronted. Sin is being confronted. So we're, we might not be confronting person, but we're confronting the problem. If you choose to go this route, when someone hurts you, offends you, sins against you, and overlook an offense, you still have to deal with the sin and forgive that person genuinely from the heart, Jesus says. Now, in most ancient cultures, the only way to regain insulted honor and glory is through a fight. Right? A good old-fashioned fight. I'm going to get my sword, I'm going to put on my armor, and we're going to go out and tango. Right? The Bible says this is foolish. It's very countercultural. There's great glory, great honor. Tiphthara is the Hebrew word there. Great glory and honor are gained through overlooking the offense. What must be sacrificed here? The right to re-mention. If you're going to overlook an offense, and that's the route you're going to go, you sacrifice the right to re-mention it. You've got to do the hard work of forgiving from the heart and never bringing it up again. Years ago in a large city in the southwestern United States, rumors spread of a certain Catholic woman who was having visions of Jesus. Reports reached the archbishop in her region, and he decided to check her out because, you know, there's always a fine line between the authentic mystic and the lunatic fringe. So he goes to her and he says, hey, Ma'am, is it true you've been having visions of Jesus? She said, yes, very simply. He said, well, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. Part of the Catholic tradition is going to a priest and confessing sins. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, Bishop? You know, you actually want me to ask Jesus to tell to tell me the sins of your past? And he said, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Call me if anything happens. Here's my number. Ten days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of this recent uh, vision apparition. Please come, she says. So the archbishop comes within the hour, arrives at her door. You just told me on the telephone you had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, Bishop. I, I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. 
The bishop leaned forward with anticipation. His eyes narrowed. He said, well, what did, what did Jesus say? She took his hands and gazed intently into his eyes and said, Bishop, these were his exact words. I can't remember. Now, I have no clue if this woman had really had visions of Jesus, but what she claimed Jesus says sounds exactly like him. That's what Jesus does. When he forgives, he puts it away. Never to be seen again. When a later moment inevitably comes in a relationship where you could bring up that past offense that you chose to overlook, and that person may even ask you, man, what did I ever do to you? And you want to say it. Man, you got to say, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. Or at least respond as if it never happened. Okay, so that's 1A. 1B, first degree B here of gentle confrontation is why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wrong? This comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 5 through 7, where Paul says this. Just to give you the context, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And before that, unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's a defeat as the body of Christ for us to bring lawsuits against one each one and have this animosity between each other in relationships. Then he goes on to say, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? So this is another option. Someone wrongs you. Someone hurts you. Why not rather be wronged? Again, we look to the example of Jesus here, right? Isaiah 53, 7 prophesying about the suffering servant, Jesus, who was to come, says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, to his death. As a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So one option is looking to the example of Jesus for strength for resolve, for power to say, you know what, I'm just going to be wronged. I'm just going to be wronged. As a pastor of college and high school students for many years, I have been thrown into my fair share of swimming pools. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a rite of passage if you work with students uh, for any period of time. If they love you, they'll throw you into a swimming pool. It's kind of just the way it is, all right? So I had, uh, for a number of years my first and probably greatest phone. I, I like phones. I like them a little less now that I live in Cayman, you know, simplicity lifestyle. But I had this Palm Trio. I had this little flip top and a stylus. Remember when styluses were cool, you know, like, yeah, it's got a stylus. Yeah, people don't have it anymore. But I had to pay for this phone with my own cash, all right? And so I, I saved up to invest in this. thought it'd be cool. We were having this pool party. I was done playing basketball with some blokes, and I'm jumping over a corner of a pool. You know, kind of casually, just jump over the corner. Uh, when an immature teenager slash punk, all right, uh, takes advantage of my corner jumping and pushes me into the pool. All right, claims he didn't mean to, of course. Oh, sorry, just passing by, right? Yeah, all right, thanks, buddy. Uh, my cell phone's down, and I'm down $200. Uh, a good friend of mine asked me later, he said, man, have you... Have you have you collected the money from the student? Have you talked to him about it? 
And I thought long and hard about this. I mean, seriously, I, you know, Jesus, what should I do? I, I don't know if this guy knows Jesus. I can either be in the right or I can have a relationship with this student. That's what I felt God really impressing upon my heart. And since the student will probably last longer than the phone, you know, probably, unless I get my hands on his neck, I decided that I'd rather be in the relationship than be right. God, help me with this. And it turns out this is true. Years later, I officiated this punk's wedding and uh, lived happily ever after. And now people no longer own trios. All right, so, you know, they're like an artifact. Now, what's got to be sacrificed? If you go this route to be wrong, what has to be sacrificed if you're going to do this? It's the right to request restitution. Right? The right to say, you know what? I thought I forgave you, but I'd kind of like my money for that. Or I'd kind of like you to pay me back for that. Maybe take me out to lunch. Maybe earn some points in our friendship or in our marriage. But if you're going to be wronged, you sacrifice the right to restitution. You've got to ask yourself, well, what's going to, ask, what's going to last longer? Right? My rights, my ego, my material thing, or my family member in Christ? That's the first degree. Letting it go, not bringing it up. Second degree of gentle confrontation would be to talk in private. Right? To go to the person in private. Matthew 18, 15 it says it this way. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Here it is again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Alone, alone, alone. So what I want to do here with the second degree of gentle confrontation is talk about the when, who, why, and how of going to a brother or going to a sister. First, when do you move on to going to that person? When do you know it's the right time to say, okay, I really need to talk to this person? In private, let's have coffee, let's have lunch. After church, let's ask if we need to just, just give you five minutes. How do you know? Or when do, when do you know you should, should do that? Here are some points here. Uh, do you know that the person has something against you? That's like an automatic. If the person has something against you, you, you should do it. If Jesus talks about that also. If you're at the altar and you're worshiping, you know someone has something against you, you've got to leave it. Leave worship, leave a worship service, go talk to them. Secondly, is their sin blatantly dishonoring to God? What do I mean by that? Because all sin is offensive to God. It grieves spirit. But there's some that's blatantly dishonoring to him. Let me give you an example here. This is from Romans chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And Paul says this, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast of the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. See what's happening here. He's saying, especially when people are claiming to be something, and they're blatantly going against that, maybe in private, maybe in secret, but as hypocrites. It's back to the hypocrites thing we talked about last week. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's this blatant sort of, yeah, I love people, but by your actions you hate them. If they're sin blatantly dishonoring to God, it might be time to talk to them in private. Here's another point. Has it damaged your relationship? It might be time to talk to the person in private if it's damaged your relationship. And I'll give you a hint here. Live by the three-day rule on this one, okay? Everything hurts at first. 
Give it three days. If your anger, your feelings are, are virtually as intense, it's probably time to confront. Is it hurting other people? So maybe some sins just hurt you, some offenses just might hurt you, but some you recognize that it's spreading among the body of Christ. It's hurting other people that that person knows. Is it hurting the offender himself or herself? James 5, 19-20, James says this, My brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So, so by helping a wandering person come back to Christ, by, by just pointing out, hey, you know, get over here, here's the path, you can help save their soul from death. It's pretty powerful. That's what God's Word says. If it's hurting them, they're killing themselves, essentially killing their life with God. It's time to talk to them in private. In answering the question of who, why, and how to talk to somebody in private, we're going to take our cues from Galatians chapter 6. And I actually would like for you, if you would, to open your Bibles there to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read this together. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. I'd like for us to read this sort of... uh, on paper, so we can kind of look at it and go through it together here. This will help us look at who, why, and how do we go to our brother in private, or our sister in private, and talk to them with this hard conversation. Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a sin, he's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So first of all, who? Who's supposed to be involved here? A family member who's unable to get free from their sin, Paul says, who's tangled up. It's a great image, by the way, right? It's a powerful image of, I just can't get out of it. And you who are spiritual are supposed to help them. If you are able to discern that somebody's caught in hurt and sin and hurting others, if you're able to see that they're unable to free themselves or have so wandered, they're too blind to find their way back on their own, and you're wondering, man, am I the person to restore them? Am I the person to go to them? Anyone ever ask that question? I don't know. I'll pray that somebody does. I'll pray somebody goes and talks to them. I don't think I'm that person. That's for the restoration ministry in the church. Guess what? We don't have a ministry like that, okay? That's everybody. Everybody's involved in that ministry, all of you. If you notice it, if you discern this person's caught, they can't get back on the path, friends, that's a pretty good sign. The answer is yes, it is you who are spiritual. If you can discern this, if you can discern, man, I need to help Someone needs to help this person. You're the person Paul's talking to here in this passage, I would suggest. Why should we step out in faith and trouble ourselves for restoration and gain? Right? To restore that person, as Matthew 18 says, to gain back a brother or a sister. And it's key. This is key to why Paul says, hey, keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. That's an interesting phrase, right? In going to somebody, 
who's caught in sin, who's caught in hurt in others, why might I be tempted? What does that mean? Is it that once we've uh, resolved to confront, I'm tempted to come out like a bulldog, right, and just hash through it relentlessly? And you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this. Is it that we're tempted to condemn the person? Is it that we're tempted to indulge in similar sin? Well, I looked at all the commentaries on this issue, and and most agree that it's purposely open-ended here because it's allowing for the possibility of something like all three. So, for example, when we remind ourselves that the aim of doing this, of, of going to our brother or sister, is to restore them back to the family sofa, we're less concerned to ruthlessly restore rightness. You know, to, make, to get our rights. You hurt me, you wronged me, I want to make it right for me. When we remind ourselves that the aim is to gain back a family member, we're reminded how you and I were restored to Jesus, even though we were caught in sin. Having seen someone hold on to a grudge, act self-righteous, indulge in self-pleasure, it's tempting to go after go home after such a confrontation and actually say, you know what, forget this. This person feels like they can do it. I should be able to do it too. It happens more than you think, friends. Maybe it's happened to you where you say, forget it. I want to I enjoy myself that way. I want to indulge in that sin. I want to, that happens as well. And I think Paul's leaving room for this as well. Instead of piling your sin onto theirs, help them carry their burden as Paul says in verse 2, text them. If they're struggling with private sin, send them a text. How's it going? I know you're on a business trip right now and probably in a hotel room by yourself, just, just checking in. <laughs> Offer to be the person who's there for them. Sacrifice to get them help. Labor and prayer for them. And so participate in their restoration. That's what we're called to do. Finally, how? How do we do this? How do we actually go through the speaking to this person? Paul advocates both gentle and confrontation. So here are some tips to be both gentle and confrontational. So number one, confront specifically and avoid making generalized, broad statements. Right? You could say like, I just feel like you're always talking about yourself. Be, be specific. Hey, you know, when we got together last week, I, I, didn't, I just feel like I wasn't heard very much. And that hurt. You know, I don't feel like you really asked me questions during that conversation. Be specific. But also gently sidestep words like always and never. So you see how the confrontational and gentle goes together. Don't say, man, you're always this way. You're never this way. So a second way to be both gentle and confrontational, gently seek. First, to understand and not to be understood. It's a good Stephen Covey thing there. Seven habits of highly effective people. See, first, to understand, not to be understood. Let the person finish what they're saying and wait. Just seek to understand where they're coming from. You'll get your chance. But also, confrontationally clarify. After they talk, after they unload their burdens, don't be afraid to say, I just want to understand, are you saying this? Uh, would you give me an example of, of what you're talking about when you say that I'm controlling or I'm not responsible? Can you just give me an example of that? 
That's good to do. You're, you're not being condescending by doing that. You're confronting the person. You can be specific. Confront the person in person wherever possible and whenever possible. Email is from Satan when it comes to this kind of stuff. All right, I'm just going to come out and say it. It's a, a prophetic word. All right, when it comes to confrontation, it should not, should not, should not be done over email. Can I say, I mean, I, I don't know how clearly else to say that. I mean, um, yeah, I'd rather you send flowers and never talk to the person. I mean, if that, that would be better than email. People can't hear you. They can't respond. It's just hurtful. In person, when possible, over the phone, Skype, if you can. Confront them in person, but gently use a gracious tone, friendly body language. I like to practice solar, square, open, lean forward, eye contact, relax. Right? (laughs) I didn't look very relaxed there, but uh, you know what I'm saying. Admission of weakness whenever it's true and relevant. Especially true. Some of, some of you guys will admit you're weak at something when it's not even true. They'll, someone will be like, you know what? Uh, maybe I do struggle with you know, never listening to people. So do I. I'm a big, I struggle with that too. Well, you know, sometimes I do struggle you know, using inappropriate language. Me too. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think we all do. And you're like, you've never said a curse word in your life. Be honest. Don't just relate to person for the sake of relating. But when you can, certainly do when it's true. Here's a fourth thing. Plan for a follow-up confrontation in the near future. Follow-up conversation, confrontation in the near future. Some people, when you talk to them about something hard, they're like dinosaurs. Some people are like dinosaurs. Some people like cows. Okay, I'm going to explain why. Some of you guys are like dinosaurs where you can take a confrontation, someone saying something hard to you, you swallow it whole, you digest it, and you spit it back out. You're like, yep, I do do that. That's a problem. You know what? I'm really sorry. Some people are like that. Some of us, myself included, are cows. All right, we don't take that the wrong way. All right, uh, we we got to chew on things. We got to chew on things. I, I think I've driven our elders over the years batty because sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll talk about things, and then later I'm thinking about like, ah, no, you know, I'm, what about this? Or hey, what about this opportunity? And it's like, well, after we meet, because I'm a chewer. I've really got to chew on things. So plan for a follow up conversation to do that. In the meantime, gently resolve to believe the best about that person until the facts prove it otherwise. Okay? Those are some tips for how we can actually have this kind of conversation. It's tough. It's hard. I encourage you to put those into play. A third degree, this is when you take one or two others along. Matthew 18, 16 says this. But if that person doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is where it gets tough, admittedly. And hopefully it doesn't come to this for you, but it does happen. The key action here is refuses to listen. And I thought, when I was preparing this week, well, how do you know if someone's listened to you or not? Because sometimes it can be confusing. You might come to someone, they might say they've listened, but in fact... Maybe their actions show otherwise, or maybe they say otherwise. So here's some tips. How do you know someone's not listening? Here's some verbal clues. Whatever. Forget it. Let's just move on. Right? Or, uh, I'm over it. 
Those are usually comments where it might appear like, oh yeah, I've forgiven you. Usually those are clues that that's not, things aren't taken care of. Nonverbal clues include uh, they're noticeably absent from situations they were previously not absent from, like your community group, (laughs) or like sitting near you during worship. Things like of this nature where they're just not around. Might be a sign. Might not be. Might be. Uh, what about the shrugging of shoulders? Eh. Or the, here, here's, one of the, here's one of the worst that gets the quick smirk. Hey, man, I, just, I feel like I need to talk to you about this. Uh, I was really hurt when you did this. Person's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, boy. Hey, I don't think it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not. What do mediators do? So if you bring someone along, why can that be helpful? Well, I'll tell you why. Uh, it can encourage self-control and listening. This comes from the Peacemaker's Ministry stuff, which is just fantastic. It encourages self-control and listening. Taking somebody else along can help prevent exaggeration and abrasive language. Right? It can just kind of steer conversation back in a way that maybe you can't because you're the one who's hurt. Uh, they can ask questions. They can clarify facts. Finally, they can be an objective reporter back to church leaders when that's needed as well. And so sometimes bringing someone along might feel awkward. You might not want to ask. It could actually be very helpful. I've been involved in this process before, and it's just helpful. So if you need to bring someone in the conversation, these are, there are good reasons to do it, to bring a third party. Whom should you pick to mediate a conversation like that? I would suggest it be somebody you trust and someone who has a relationship with the other person. If there's somebody that you trust and has a relationship with the other person, that's helpful. Don't just pick someone who's in your corner. All right? Uh, you want to communicate that you love this brother, this sister who's hurt you. You want to restore and gain them back. And so you want to pick someone that they're comfortable with as well. Look, for most of us this morning, our tendency will be to walk away from God's plan here, God's word, hazily thinking about, okay, here are these three degrees of confrontation. I may have written them down. But you decide in your hearts, honestly, this is too dang hard. I'll just, I'll just overlook the sin. And, and friends, overlooking sin has its place, but so does confronting the person. And, and if you've never done the latter, you, you are hurting. You are hurting both your brother at fault and others in God's family who may go on to pay the price, who may similarly be hurt by that person's actions. Uh, Chuck Yeager, the famed test pilot, was flying an F-86 Sabre over a lake in the Sierra Mountains when he decided to buzz over a friend's house near the edge of the lake. That'd be cool just to buzz over a friend's house one day. I don't don't know what that feels like. Um, But he was doing this slow roll in his plane when he felt his aileron lock. And says, Jaeger, it was a hairy moment. I was flying 150 feet above the ground and upside down, unable to change my position. Now, a lesser pilot may have panicked with fatal results, but Jaeger let off the Gs, pushed up the nose, and sure enough, the aileron unlocked. He climbed up to 15,000 feet where it was safer. Jaeger tried the maneuver again. And every time that he rolled, the same problem occurred. And 
Jaeger had heard of about three or four pilots who had died under similar circumstances. But to date, investigators were, were clueless as to the source of the Sabre's fatal flaw. So he went to his superior with a report, and the inspectors went to work investigating what, what went wrong. And they found that the, a bolt on the aileron cylinder was installed upside down. Eventually, the culprit was found in a North American plant. He was an older man on the assembly line who ignored the instructions about how to insert that bolt. Because by golly, he knew that bolts were supposed to be placed head up, not head down. But his superiors, all of whom were younger than him, never confronted him. Figuring that the problem would just take care of itself. And no one would get hurt. In the sad commentary, Jaeger says that nobody ever told the man how many pilots he had killed. Let's pray. Father, I recognize this morning that this is probably the, the hardest of the four steps to peace between people, that to, to go to somebody, I don't know what's harder, getting the log out of our own eye or this step, but to go to someone and say, you know, I, I feel hurt. I recognize you're caught. It might be, you might be caught in something. I just want to talk about it. It's hard, Lord. It's, but it can be the most loving thing to do. It can be the most kind thing to do. The most eternally beneficial. You can, we can save someone's soul from death, God's Word says from helping this, this brother who's wandered, this sister who's wandered. So I just prayed this morning that you would remind us, Jesus, of what you did for us. Your word is riddled with occasions, Jesus, where you confronted people. You were so gentle, but you were also confrontational. You talked to people about the wrong they were in, and then you restored them to yourself. Jesus, help us be those kind of agents those kind of ministers of reconciliation who are willing to go to a brother or sister, gently confront them, and just pray for you to work. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.